Welcome to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast, where we celebrate the craft of poetry. Each week, we feature interviews with incredible poets and artists, including Olivia Gatwood and A.E. Stallings, and original poetry read by the authors. I'm your host, James Moorhead, poet laureate of Dublin, California, and author of Canvas and Portraits of Red and Gray. On this week's episode of the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast, I'm going to demonstrate how writing poetry can unlock memories and connect readers with universal truths. I'll share memoir poems from my first two books, Canvas and Portraits of Red and Gray, and discuss how I unlock details from years or even decades ago through the poetic writing process. I'll also share how I approached introducing turns into some of the poems to make them more than personal memories. Before diving into my new book, Portraits of Red and Gray, I'm going to share a poem from my first book that captures a powerful experience from my teenage years and that taps into a universal emotion. Crush. Teen week at Foxwood Inn. I'm 15, scrawny, bookwormed, and shy. She arrives so tall, her rich brown curls waving a smile, dazzling and confident. The crush envelops me, its weight taking my breath away. As she turns the corner, there is no time to say hi, and I fear being caught staring too long. Each morning after breakfast, I peek over my paperback, waiting for her to pass by, and if her eyes catch mine, I shrink and blush my heart crushed and racing. Later, by the dock, the jocks show off their running shirtless headlong dives while I sit, silently, on a fading Muskoka chair, tucking my book under a towel, avoiding splashes. When the last night comes, her name a mystery still, with stairway to heaven's sorrowful intro begun, I crush fear, walking towards her, extending my hand, offering a dance. She looks me in the eye and quietly nods, no, and takes the dance floor with one of the diving boys. I walk into darkness across dew-damp grass down to the end of the dock, sitting, legs swinging, toes caressing the still cool lake, Robert Plant echoing in the distance. Between chords, I hear footsteps, She's there, her hand on my shoulder, a tear sliding down my cheek. I like you, James, but just as a friend, sitting down beside me as the song ends. I feel the crush as my imagined first kiss drifts away with the ripples beneath my feet, but in time smile, eyes closed and dry, replaying her saying my name. I was struggling how to capture this experience until I focused on the word crush, which has such a universal meaning. I played with the word, trying to use the word in as many different ways as possible. The feeling of a crush, crushing fear, being crushed. As I wrote this poem decades after the experience, I started with the slimmest details. But as I've found with other memoir poems, the writing process, and in particular the poetic writing process, forces you to imagine the experience in a visceral way. The images, sounds, smells, feelings, 
All the raw material needed to create poetry has to be mined from memory. It's magical how pulling threads of memory unlocks more memories, especially as you revise and edit the poem. Poems are rarely, if ever, written in one sitting. Poems are written, rewritten, and edited over days, weeks, and sometimes months or even years. That's important because sleep cycles unlock memories. I'll go to sleep with a poetic problem to solve, and more often than not wake up with a new idea or approach or detail. Sometimes capturing a present experience can unlock memories from decades before. A good example is the opening poem for my new book, Portraits of Red and Gray. The poem I'm about to read was inspired by seeing a copy of The New Yorker on a friend's coffee table. I'm also a fan of the magazine, and as I thought about the connection between The New Yorker in her house and mine, I was reminded of my father's love of The New Yorker, and the poem took a different turn. The New Yorkers Visiting last fall, I noticed The New Yorker on your kitchen counter, our issues identical but for the address boxes. One marked California, well lit by endless sun. The other, Lake of Bays, burrowed deep in pine. I wonder, do we skip the same reviews, ponder the same poems, laugh at the same cartoons? Do you display a curated selection of covers on your coffee table and bathroom magazine rack? When I was younger, I would sit cross-legged among your colorful, unread stacks. So many words left to learn, I thought, as I thumbed through another issue. As I walk back in from the mailbox, my copy buried in a pile of bills, I imagine you, lingering in bed, hiding from mom, finishing one last page. I begin with fiction and wonder, are you searching for fiction too? Or have you fallen back asleep as the pages slip through your fingers? My new book, Portraits of Red and Gray, is built around a series of poems about an 18-day trip to the Soviet Union I took back in 1983. This is before Perestroika, before the fall of the Berlin Wall, during the Cold War. This is the Soviet Union through the eyes of a teenager. It was a remarkable experience, and it wasn't until years later, in university, that I spent four months capturing the experience in a series of poems, and years later still that I found a home for this collection. Here is a small taste of Portraits of Red and Gray. Number 12. Deep into hollowed holes, steep stretched escalators test my nerves. I reach the bottom and fears forgotten, unfolding like sheets of gold leaf, subway walls and corporate graffiti, replaced by ornate beauty, fountains, stages, paintings, marble, dreamy moonlit, towering, magnificent, a sparkling Atlantis, a treasure chest cavern, hidden and buried in stone. Phil is missing. Press of travelers, a crowded platform, shouts from behind. He's running, frightened, shouts in Russian, a red card flashing, arms waving. A man steps into his path, blocks, catches, holding. Marshy quickly gives directions and leaves us, chasing Phil and his captors. We huddle, a small group in Frank's room, 
trying to joke for hours. We hear from Phil. He was caught trading money, five Canadian dollars for ten Russian rubles. His captors asked for a signed confession and a promise to never return. Midnight, and they return, exhausted. It doesn't feel like spring vacation. It is dark and close and cold. Portraits of Red and Gray, number 16. We run into green foothills, like the Von Trapp family, the mountains before us, a wall hiding warring Afghanistan, 15 miles by crow flight. Dushanbe lit glorious, warmth springing from sunlight, summer bursting outward, fierce from its slumber. We run and gasp through thinning air, tiring quickly, breathing sharply, a simple picnic eaten on boulders, watching the snow line melt beneath our feet. Revived, we slide in slush and mud, skiing in sneakers, carving trails in liquid grass. We glide toward a small village, hidden in a valley, ignoring our impatient bus driver's calls. The village's houses are frail, precarious, thin sheet metal roofs, barely balanced, teeter. A naked man stands oblivious in a shower without walls. Chickens peck at our footprints, funny and furious. A statue of Lenin, hollow plastic, as small as the village bolted stronger than rooftops, stands proud and defiant on a slab of gray concrete. I've been asked by multiple readers how I could remember so many details, especially when I had no photographs from this trip. Because of all the restrictions about taking photos in the Soviet Union back then, not to mention the lack of smartphones, I didn't risk taking any photos. When I started writing this series of poems, I had clear memories of some events and only sketches of others. Getting started was difficult. I didn't have any record of the itinerary, just my memories to go on. So I started with the memories that were the strongest and wrote those down, much of the time with my eyes closed, in near darkness, so I could watch my memories like a movie and capture them. But then something magical happened, something that I believe can help you deal with powerful memories. The more I wrote, the more I remembered, and the more vivid the memories became. In the article that accompanies this episode on viewlesswings.com, I've included some of the pages from the very first handwritten drafts of Portraits of Red and Gray. As I wrote these poems, I would dig into my memories not just for what happened and when it happened, but what it felt like, sounded like, smelled like. The more I wrote, the more I was transported and immersed. It's a remarkable what is trapped in your memories and what you can remember if you use poetry to mine your memory. Our minds are incredible things, capturing so many details. The challenge is unlocking those details, and poetry is like a key to your memories. Portraits of Red and Gray, number 23. It's time for our big deal. Phil met a fur hat dealer. Raoul wants a rabbit cap and caviar. I come along for company. The trader meets us behind our hotel at midnight, nervously smoking a frail Russian cigarette. We give him a pack of Marlboros. 
A cab appears from around the corner, and we crawl inside, cramped together in a rattling car, flying through abandoned streets. Our new friend says his apartment is close, but we pass over the same canal three times. The driver is boosting the fare. Cobblestones are replaced with asphalt and potholes. The marbled ornate spectacle is gone. Streetlights are dark or smashed or flickering. We walk in silence to his doorway. Our foreign English voices are easy targets for keen, ambitious ears. Up a dusty stairwell, inside a grimy doorway, relieved. We drop our coats in his arms and tiptoe past his sleeping mother, ducking into his closed, cramped room. He fills our hands with glasses and a shot of vodka. We smile and clink and wince in unison. He says he can only stay in Leningrad if he lives with his mother. He pulls out a box of wedding pictures, women he has married and later divorced, for a small fee, so they too can live in the city. He shows off a shoebox bulging with postcards and love letters from faraway tourists. He pulls out three black rabbit hats. We each grab one and run our fingers across smooth fur. Raoul and Phil barter with dollars. I just sit back and watch, the trader's eyes keen for a deal, his head haloed by an enormous American flag draped on the wall behind him. It is late, and we tire, and our trader must go to work, bottling Pepsi. He goes twice a week for two hours, and the government leaves him alone. Our taxi meanders through Leningrad streets, and we do not pass a soul as we wander in darkness. The only memento I have from that trip is the Russian hat that I bartered for that night in Leningrad. I wish I could pass this hat around for you to hold. A photograph of the very hat I bartered for is included in the article that accompanies this episode on viewlesswings.com. There are so many more stories from that trip to the Soviet Union in my book, Portraits of Red and Gray, and to a window into Cold War Soviet life is tragically relevant. Memoir poems, however, don't need to be inspired by extraordinary journeys to faraway places. The simplest moment can inspire a memoir poem. Here's an example from Portraits of Red and Gray. Lost and Found I nudge my reading glasses down, watching you rummage through drawers. My glasses? Where did I leave my glasses? You repeat to yourself, hoping for an answer. I quietly observe this well-scripted, tightly performed scene on the family room stage as your fingers fumble until, in exasperation, you set down your book and walk away. These things we lose track of, a puzzle piece clinging to a sweaty forearm, an unpaid bill, the anniversary card bought last week, a ring of keys all tucked away too safely. I worry most of all about the pages ripped from a daily calendar on my desk, then crumpled and thrown away one day closer to a final tear. Perhaps next time I should offer you my reading glasses, then lie back, eyes closed, and dream of all the things I've lost or forgotten until, in the quiet of night, I find what I was looking for. This poem was inspired one afternoon as I was reading on the couch and my wife was trying to find her reading glasses. 
That's it. A single, simple moment. In that moment, though, I tried to connect a personal experience to something universal. Some of the memories I captured needed the form of prose poetry. One poem I struggled with that was built on a powerful experience in Normandy years ago went through at least three complete rewrites before I found a form that worked. The first version of this poem was written in formal verse, a rigid pattern of syllables and rhymes. The form was fighting with the poem, and the epiphany was to write the poem as a prose poem in the form of a screenplay. Imagine how this poem is visualized as a screenplay as I read it. Normandy, in nine scenes. 1. Business Trip Detour I head out alone when meetings end on the TGV speeding west. From La Tour Eiffel to Normandy's coast, scenes flutter by in a blur. 2. Disembark for Chocolat My rollerboard rattles to a quaint hotel in Caen. Moulot au Chocolat awaits and with a nudge the center flows, molten on my plate. 3. Up at dawn. The directions are unfolded in near English and French. Arrive precisely at 9, Le Memorial de Caen. Steady rain. Shivers. The streets are mostly empty. The Citroën departs. 4. None but one. The meeting place is empty. Perhaps I botched the time. But sure enough, and on the dot, the tour guide arrives. I'm forty-something, six foot five, the guide petite, and half my age. An awkward pause as she looks up. A French knot scarf is tied, just so. Her voice is firm, Parisian tones. Do you mind the rain? I think she hopes I'll quit the tour, but I am not deterred. Resigned, she turns, clipboard in hand, and leads me to her van. 5. They head west. I sit up front by textbook stacks, empty rows behind. Driving west past Bayeux, picturesque and calm, the guide speaks softly and begins, that town was spared during the war, this other one fully destroyed. 6. The White Crosses I wander through the countless rows, white crosses set in green. Below Cimitière Américain, the channel within reach, saving Private Ryan scenes. But the beaches now are hedgehog-free. Two lovers walking hand in hand, a fisherman by lines of rods anchored in gray sand. Later, my guide whispers, This is my favorite place, Melancholie, a quiet space. 7. Where Rangers Scaled. Where we go next is up to you, so I ask her to suggest. In that case, off to Pointe de Hoc not sure what to expect. She tells me tales of army rangers scaling cliffs, then trapped for days, German soldiers tucked in bunkers, 
we climb down into burrowed craters blasted long ago. Since the war, she observes, nothing here will ever grow. 8. The Black Crosses She starts to drive back towards Caen, the rain slowing to mist. There's one more place I recommend. It's not part of the tour. I signal yes. We park near some hedges, unkempt and nondescript. This graveyard's for forgotten soldiers, not marked on any map. Each plot holds Germans, two or three, buried in a stack. I pause among the unnamed crosses, each simply carved in black. 9. White and Black Now it's time. She checks her watch as we turn to leave. Through the windshield, fields pass by, each filled with crosses, black and white, their arms outstretched and drenched in mist, each waiting for the clouds to lift. The next pair of poems, from Portraits of Red and Gray, are related. Each of them takes a memory and connects it to something more. You'll see how they're connected after I've read both of them. As we paused on the cables, we leave in darkness, guided by headlamp beams and the ch-ch-ch of boots on gravel. We hike for hours through waterfall mist up stone-carved steps in forest depths, lit by hints of sunrise glow, past cottonwood and oak, until in time our muscles ache. Then breaking through the tree line's edge, lit brilliant as the shadows flee, switchbacks in stone go farther up, and in the distance, anchored firm, a pair of cables, two sleek lines, appear on Half Dome's spine. We join the queue, anxious, unsure, then cling to steel and start to climb on cooled magma, slick as frost from winter's rain in years before. And then my calf begins to cramp. I pause for breath, suspended on a weathered plank. Your camelback just steps ahead. You turn and ask, are you okay? And so I say, we're almost there. We'll be okay. And I can see the summit now. And then... And then, I'm holding you, only just born, cradled up, so perfect, slight. My teary eyes begin to blur, time disconnects, I won't let go, your sleeping breath so softly slows. For Emily. Ode to Docks. Stiff leather, steel-toed, air-cushioned, yellow-stitched. I took my docks everywhere, to the Diamond Club on Sherburn, to Maple Leaf Gardens for Purple Rain, to the Silver Crown every Saturday night. It was 1988, my hair crimped jet black, sprayed stiff like Robert Smith, a reference photo by my mirror. I stood for hours in those docks, waiting for Love and Rockets to take the stage, or Thomas Dolby, or Depeche Mode, or others I've long forgotten. I was tall and slender and safe in those docks that signaled 
alternative. When winter came, they gripped the ice, and in the rain they kept me dry. As I grow older, they do too, showing the scuffs of passing time and one more crease with each step. When I pass a window display and see docks, all shiny and new, I'll pause, look down, and keep walking. And when I step into the Fillmore, you join me, all grown up and beaming with the joy of a Christmas morning, our docks side by side as the band takes the stage. For Evelyn. That pair of poems were built around experiences that connect me with my daughters. Connecting your love for a spouse, child, parent, friend can be beautifully expressed by capturing a shared experience in poetry. Poetry, as I've noted before, forces you to focus on emotions, senses, and less about minutia or plot or story. Poetry done well can transport you and leave finishing the poem to the reader. I've been surprised over the years how my poetry is interpreted in many different ways by readers. How a poem I've written based on my memories unlocks a completely different memory in the mind of the reader. I'm going to close with two more poems. The first poem captures time I spent with my cousins one summer in the tiny town of Savory, Wyoming. The form of the poem needed to be slight. Lots of open space, like Wyoming. Quiet. The second poem is the title poem from my first book, Canvas, which is a series of memories wrapped in a fantastical image. That Summer in Savory, Wyoming Speeding along Wyoming 70, alone in the back of my aunt's Audi. The Savory, Wyoming sign claims, Population 25. I guess I could meet them all if I tried. I've brought my Boston busyness, expecting every minute to be filled. Instead, my cousin spends hours making flies. I learn they are for fooling fish. I read through every book he owns, some twice. I flip the Billy Joel cassette over and over. I'm awoken by a rooster to collect eggs each morning, reaching under the soft of hens. I explore every corner of the dusty, manure-scented barns. I watch a family of foxes pop up, then scurry when I'm hiking near their den. I build a spaceship from discarded wood. I mow the front lawn for an afternoon, amusing my aunt. It was a field, not a lawn. I spend hours spelling horse with a basketball. I silently watch as my uncle bails hay, his crisp Stetson a silhouetted shadow in noon sun. I ask about the cattle guards as we rattle in his F-150. I walk to the general store, searching for candy. I do other things, and nothing, for hours and days and weeks. When night falls, I fall asleep, lulled by the quiet of Wyoming. Canvas. I stretch myself over the frame pulled taut to smooth skin's creases, my canvas set awaiting your first stroke. You lay out the brushes with care, bristles clean and dry. The first brush, its head cut sharp to detail the subtle wrinkles around my eyes. 
the second wide to fill my laughing smile, the third rough to capture a storm swelling behind me over the sea, and one more a piercing point to drop a tear that belies my melancholy. Stepping back, you scan me before preparing your palate. What shade of Caucasian to choose for my sun-aged skin? How much gray will you need to sneak silver threads into my thick brown hair? How should you dress me? What textures will you drape? Am I alone on a trail or seething in a concert crowd? How will you capture the chaotic cacophony swirling in my mind with only strokes of oil? And how can you reflect everything I've seen into the detail of my eyes, and are they wide open alert, unable to find sleep, or quivering and fighting exhaustion, or are they shut tight and twitching in REM-triggered dreams, or are they still serene like death? I think you should start with my memories, so many to choose from you can't possibly paint them all, lest the layers grow so deep that the color slides for me, dripping forgotten onto the floor. Perhaps start with the bliss of running through a New England park, pulling a kite, its fluttering tail flying up into the crisp fall breeze, the critch-critch sound of leaves beneath my feet. Perhaps start with the melancholy of bullies' fear that started in sixth grade and lingered relentless until my scrawny frame sprouted six feet tall in high school. Perhaps start with the sound of music for my parents practicing while I lie beneath the Steinway, floating on waves of notes as father's fingers race the keys while mother's oboe pierces the chords. Or perhaps start with the near silence of when I escape the frenetic digital pulse and head onto a trail, stepping in rhythm, until hours later I lie back, eyes closed, to let my ears explore the forest depths. I hope you choose to paint me with my eyes wide open so I can see your expression as you apply the final stroke. And when you are done, and the paint is drying, its pungent odor slowly fading and imperceptible until the last molecule of scent escapes. And when you walk away, your brushes cleaned and neatly packed, your tubes of paint capped and stored, will you remember me? Will you remember each brush stroke and shade of oil? Will you be relieved to finish me to escape this dreary task? Or will you wait until the palette runs dry so we can share this moment a little longer? I hope you enjoyed this episode and please consider buying my books. Both are available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and at independent booksellers. Signed copies of Canvas and Portraits of Red and Gray are available on viewlesswings.com. Thank you so much for spending a few minutes with me and my poetry. And check out the other episodes of Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast, terrific interviews with poets and guest features featuring submitted poetry. The Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast is written and produced by James Moorhead. You can follow me on Twitter at Dublin Ranch. Subscribe to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast and follow us on viewlesswings.com or on Instagram at viewlesswings.